We've already been in this overview for two weeks. We're going to finish it up today, and then we'll get into chapter 13, verse 1 next week. So the first three chapters, as I've said before, deals with the condition of sinful men and women. We are outside of Christ, dead in our trespass and sin, separated from God, and that is everyone, everywhere, at all times. And that's bad news. But God is so gracious and kind, and He justified us through faith in His Son. It's not through works. It's not through keeping the rules or being a good person, because the Bible says none of us could ever do that. Nobody could measure up. And so God has declared us innocent through faith in Jesus. He reconciled us, chapter 5. We are at peace with God. Chapter 6 through 7, we're growing in godliness. We are becoming more like Christ and less like the, the old man or the old woman. Chapter 8, where we were last week, that was broken up into three parts. We had union with Christ. We are united to Him. Adoption in the Spirit. We have been adopted, not just forgiven, but brought into the family of God. We are sons and daughters of God because of what Christ has done. And then lastly, we talked about God's sovereignty. God is supreme. God is in control. God does not cater to the whims of man. He is able to do what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, and He's totally free to do that. And so we talked about that last week, and that's a glorious truth. That is something that Christians take great comfort and delight in because nothing is in our control, is it? We have no control over anything. And so to know that we have trusted an all-powerful God who is absolutely in control brings us great comfort in any season of life. And so we talked about that last week. And that brings us to chapter 9, which we deal with God's election. The election of God. Still God's sovereignty. That's really the, the theme of chapters 9 through 11, as seen in God's election. And so as I've said before, the book of Romans is a gospel masterpiece. There's no other book like it. It truly is the, the center jewel and the crown of the New Testament. It's a glorious book, such a systematic explanation of the gospel. But... Uh, Chapters 9 through 11, I would call somewhat of a gospel mystery. So the book itself is a gospel masterpiece, but 9 through 11 is a gospel mystery. You know, there, there is some tension in the Bible between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Man's free will. You'll often hear that, that phrase. And how, how do the two go together? How does that work? It's such a, a mystery to us. But there is a balance. There is a balance, to be sure. As much of a, as a mystery it might be to us, God sees the harmony, for sure. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the, the great prince of preachers, was once asked, how do, I, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, man's free will? And his response to that was simply, I have no need to reconcile friends. You know, they're not at odds with one another. They, they fit together in some glorious way that God knows. And so we, we understand the Bible is clear. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is working providentially to cause things to come together the way that He has purposed from eternity past. But then on some level, man has responsibility. Man has freedom. And we know that. You have freedom from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you go to bed. It starts with that snooze button, doesn't it? You have a choice to make. 
You're going to hit snooze or you're going to get out of bed. And then on it goes. And so you might even say that Romans 9 through 11 is a, is a um, gospel mystery sandwich, if I may call it that. Because chapters 9 and 11 very clearly deal with God's sovereignty. But right in the middle of that, chapter 10, we see man's responsibility to believe the gospel, to receive the gospel, and then to share the gospel. And so it's God's sovereign doing. God is working. God is in control. But man has a responsibility to believe and to share. And so... Uh, you might even say it's a, a mystery meat sandwich because in the middle of this, there's just the mystery to how it all ties together. I know that sounds kind of silly, but trying to have a lighthearted approach here because this is a heavy, very heavy text, and it has been the center of a lot of, of um, debate and argument for centuries. And so there's no, no easy way around this, folks. Chapter 9 especially, but 9, 10, and 11 it's, it's hard. It's difficult. I'm going to have to ask you to really put on your Bible hats today. You're going to have to think critically with me. It's good to be a critical thinker when it comes to the Scriptures. My pastor in South Carolina used to say, we need to think critically. Don't be a critical stinker, but think critically. And so that's how we approach the Scriptures. And so Paul is making an argument, and he is using Old Testament Scripture to back it up. And so we have to really follow what Paul's line of reasoning here, what his logic is here, to understand what he is ultimately getting at. So as I said, it is a mystery to us, the balance, but we don't have to understand it. We just rest in it. We don't have to wrestle with it. We just rest in it. Amen? We rejoice in it. We praise God for it. All right, so a little, bit of, a little bit of context here. Romans chapter 8. You may remember last week, Romans chapter 8 ended with this glorious declaration that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing could sever that relationship. Nothing could snatch us out of Jesus' hand, he told us, right? Well, Romans 9 opens essentially with Paul saying one might ask the question, what about the Jews? You know, nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but what about the Jews? He said that he could wish himself separated. Uh, we'll see that here in a moment. He says, you know, nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ, but I could wish that I myself were separated if it meant salvation for the Jews. So we see all of these glorious promises for the Christian but what about the Jew that has rejected their Messiah? That becomes kind of the, the central theme here. So God's dealings with the Jews in the face of their rejection of the promised Messiah. And so there are four arguments in chapter 9 that are, that are uh, basically brought forth. Paul assumes four questions. And then he speaks to each one of those questions. And that's kind of the outline of chapter 9 as we work our way through it. And so four questions one might ask about God's dealings with the Jews. And Paul makes his argument on God's sovereignty based on key Old Testament texts. And so I just need you to kind of grasp that as we start to move through chapter 9 because we can get lost in the weeds really quickly. 
And so I want to do the best that I can to help us track with what Paul is saying here, with where Paul is going. So the first point that Paul makes in chapter 9 is that God never intended for all of Abraham's descendants to be the children of the promise. You know, what about the Jews? You know, what about those who haven't believed? Paul says it was not God's intention that all of Israel would be part of the promise. We'll see that in a moment. He goes on to state that God has the freedom to choose whomever He wishes over whomever He wishes. God can do that. He has the freedom. He goes on to say that God has His purpose for choosing whomever He wishes. God has freedom. God has His purpose. And then we're going to see the fourth point. God has the right. God has the right to choose whomever He wishes. And so that's, that's really what we see come out in chapter 9. And as I said, this is, uh, this is hard for people, this particular chapter. It brings up some very tough questions about God and God's dealings with, with people and, and how He seemingly chooses people over other people. And people have all kinds of different ways in which they, they, they've worked that out in their mind. But I don't want to get too much into all of those peripheral things. I just want to look directly at the text today. So with that, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So after all the glorious aspects of God's grace toward the Christian, Paul brings up the Jew. What about the Jew? His heart broke for the Jews, for his brethren, for his countrymen, according to the flesh. He said, I could wish myself a curse. That is damned. That's what the word means. Separated from Christ and damned, if that meant that the Jews could have salvation. So where did Paul get a heart like that? Where did, exactly? From God. Because, and let me tell you something. Paul's not going to have a heart that bleeds and breaks like that, and God doesn't have a heart that bleeds and breaks like that. We know that God's heart, God's desire, is to see the lost be found. To see those who are dead in sin find life in Christ. Those who are surely headed for hell to be saved from God's wrath and the torment of hell and to find life in Him. And so Paul's heart, I believe, is a demonstration of God's heart. You know, 2 Peter 3, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse uh, 9, sorry about that, says that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. Not willing that any would perish, but that they would come to repentance. 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 3, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that is the heart of God. That is, He is a saving God. He desires to see men and women come to faith in Christ and be saved, to repent, to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's Paul's heart. And we saw that in his life. And that was his heart for the Jews. You know, he said he could wish himself to be accursed. I mean, that's, I don't know about you, that's crazy. Have you ever thought that before? Have you ever felt such a love that you could say that? 
that I could be a curse from Christ for the salvation of someone else, you know, where does that come from? Well, that is the heart of Christ. Christ demonstrated that with His own life. Galatians 4.8 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became a curse for you and for me. Christ bore the wrath of Almighty God there on the cross on our behalf. And so we see this is God's heart is to save. And Jesus gave His life. Jesus became that curse for you and I. So when Paul makes a statement like this, he's merely reflecting the heart of God and the actions of Christ. We need that, do we not? We need a heart like that. That's not natural. That's not normal for, for humans. You know, self-preservation, that's, that's number one. That is the number one instinct of mankind. And so we need God's eyes, God's heart, that we would, we would see other people and have that kind of broken heart for the lost. And so that should be our prayer. We should be praying regularly, God, give me a heart that breaks for the lost, that I would agonize in prayer for the lost, and that we would regularly try to reach the lost anytime God would give us an opportunity. Well, the, the first question that kind of comes up here is, has God, God's Word failed? You know, God made a promise to Abraham. All the, the, the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. That through his, his seed would, would come, you know, just innumerable people and seem to be this great blessing that would be upon the, the people, the nation of Israel. Yet they've rejected their Messiah. And so one might ask the question, has God failed? Has God's Word fallen to the ground? Verse 6, But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So there is no failure on God's part here. This was God's plan all along, all part of God's sovereign plan. Paul goes on to give a detailed biblical explanation of God's plan in election for Israel. And so the first point that Paul makes, as you have already noted, not all of Israel are Israel. Not all of Abraham's descendants are children of the promise. Remember, Abraham had two children in, in particular in the beginning. Who were they? Isaac and... Huh? Nope. Ishmael. Very good. Isaac and Ishmael. Which one was the child of promise? Isaac. Exactly. So God, God didn't intend for all of Abraham's descendants to be the, the children of promise. One. There was one child of promise, and that was Isaac. So let's look at verse 10. Now, let me just say this. There is a, a parenthetical statement in these verses that is sandwiched right in between. And so the way I'm going to read this is I'm going to take verse 11 out and I'm going to read it at the end because this will really kind of, it gets really tricky here. And so Paul is making a really in-depth statement and then he puts this parenthetical statement right in the middle which makes it so confusing. Does that make sense? So we're going to, we're going to read it like this. So verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, 
even by our father Isaac, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In verse 11, it says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So not all of Isaac's descendants were to be children of the promise. Not all of Abraham's descendants were the children of the promise. It was Isaac. And not all of Isaac's children were going to be children of the promise. Now, who are Isaac's children? I heard it already. Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Very good. And so, which one of those was going to be the, the child of promise? Jacob. There was only a problem there. There's a problem there, though. What is it? Which one was born first? Esau. Esau. So Esau should have been the child of promise, right? He should have been the one who received ultimately the inheritance. But God had already determined before they were even born that the second born was going to be the child of promise, that he was going to be the one who would have the inheritance ultimately. And so um, it even tells us in Malachi 1 that it says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. That's, that's kind of shocking to us when we, when we hear that. To hear that God hated Esau, we think, what's up with that? <clears throat> but what's really shocking is that God loved Jacob, if you think about it. Because were either one of these upstanding men, were, were either one of Jacob or Esau good they were not. In fact, Jacob's name means scoundrel or heel catcher. <clears throat> and so we know that neither one of these men were of great reputation or character, but God had shown preference to Jacob. God had chosen that he was going to love Jacob and that his promise was going to come through Jacob, not Esau. Even though in, in human terms and, and human understanding, it should have gone to Esau, but God had a plan. God had a purpose in it all, and God had determined that Jacob would be the child of promise. So this kind of brings us to the next question that would be asked, and that is, was God wrong for choosing Jacob over Esau? Did God have the right to do that, or was he wrong for that? So Paul's going to go to Exodus now to explain that God had every right to do what He chose to do. And so, Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of Him who wills, nor of Him who runs, but of God who shows mercy." So he's referencing Exodus 33 here. And you'll recall Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. Moses wanted to see, he wanted to behold God's glory. And God did allow him to. God said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock and I'm going to cover it. I'm going to pass by, remove my hand, and you're essentially going to see the place I was just standing. But when Moses made this request, God's response to him was, I'll have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. So God's basically saying, I don't have to 
I don't have to answer your request favorably, but I'm going to. It's God's prerogative, it's God's freedom, it's God's right to do what he will. And in Moses' case, he had purposed that he was going to have mercy and compassion on Moses. Um, that brings us to the, uh, the third point. Hold on. Sorry, okay, yeah. So that brings us to the third, the third question or point. That is, God has a purpose in choosing whom he will. God has a purpose in choosing whom he will. So Paul goes on to give an example from Exodus 9, 16. So Romans 9, verse 17, it says, For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? So God had purposed that he was going to have mercy and compassion on Moses. That's good news for us, folks. Because we can have confidence in prayer. We come to God and know that God is free. God is not hindered. If God wants to be gracious, if God wants to be merciful, He can do that. Amen? And so that gives us confidence in prayer. Why else do we pray? Why would we pray if we didn't believe that? Why do we pray for the salvation of the lost if we didn't believe that God is mighty to save and that God will intervene in that person's life and break that person's heart, open their eyes to the glories of Christ, and bring them in? We know deep down inside we believe that. That's why we pray like that. And I just want you to know you can pray like that. You can have that kind of confidence because God will have mercy on whomever He will have mercy and compassion on whomever He will have compassion. That is God's free grace. God is not hindered. God is not stopped. Amen? Amen. Man, praise God for that. Our God is a saving God. And He has purpose that He's going to save. And praise God, that's why we are here today. Because God had purposed that He was going to have mercy on us. And that's exactly what He did. So now conversely, He says that He will harden whom He will harden. This is where it gets really challenging. People really struggle with this here. And Paul is referencing Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? God sent Moses into Egypt with a mission. And his mission was to have the, the children of Israel set free from Egypt to go and worship God. But Pharaoh, what was his response when Moses came in? Who is this God that I should serve him? He mocked God. He scoffed at God. He questioned, who is this God? He wasn't going to honor God. So Moses, or uh, it, we are told here that God said he was going to harden Pharaoh, that he was going to bring his curse down upon Egypt to show his might, to show his power. And so some people say, well, what's up with that, man? What's up that, that God would harden Pharaoh? But here's what you have to understand. Pharaoh was a wicked man, was he not? He was a God-hater. He was a blasphemer, a God-mocker. Did God owe him anything? Absolutely not. When God had purposed that he was going to judge Pharaoh, was God right in that? 
Absolutely he was, because nobody deserves God's blessing. The Bible is clear, we don't deserve God's blessing. We deserve the exact opposite. So when God gives mercy to anyone, that is amazing grace. It's the amazing grace that we love to sing about. And when God executes judgment on the wicked, God is righteous in justice. God is righteous and holy in His judgment. And He deserves to be glorified in both because He is both. He is a gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, and He is also a righteous and holy judge. And He is glorified in salvation, and He is glorified in judgment and damnation. And God has determined that He would be glorified in both. You know, Paul anticipates a person taking issue with this, as many do. And so there's another question that comes forth. You know, why would he find fault who has resisted his will? Let me just side note. If you find yourself regularly uh, in line with the person asking questions here, that's not a good thing. If, if the objections being raised here, you're, you're right there with them saying, yeah, but, 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 that's not a good thing. You know, we don't want to be on that side. We want to be with Paul on this. And so Paul says, look, God has the right. God has the right to choose whomever he will. And that's the fourth point. Now Paul's going to go to Jeremiah 18 to make that case. So Romans 9, verse 20, it says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So the Bible is clear that we are clay and God is the potter. God has the right, the authority to do what He wants to with the clay. With one lump of clay, He makes a vessel of mercy. He makes some, someone upon whom He is going to show grace and be glorified for it. And in the same way, he takes the clay and he makes a vessel upon which he will be glorified as judge. And so, let me just, uh, that's, that's kind of a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? And so, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says this. And again, this is kind of part of the balance here, you know. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. God's heart is that, that men and women would turn. Turn from their wicked way and live. He doesn't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. But one thing the Bible is crystal clear on is that he is glorified in it. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure in it. But when justice is served, when every wrong is made right, God is glorified in it. And so Paul is saying that God is the potter and He has the right to do what He will. So that's Romans chapter 9. Now, we spent the most time there. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tricky to navigate through. But Paul is essentially saying, just recap, what about the Jews? You know? There are all these glorious, glorious promises to Christians and will never be separated from the love of God. But what about the Jews? I could wish myself to be separated from the love of God if it meant riches for, if it meant grace, if it meant salvation for the Jews. 
And so then he begins to track through how this was all part of God's sovereign plan. And just so you know, in chapter 11, he's going to say that in the end, God is going to take that rejection of the Jews and turn it around, and it's going to be a widespread acceptance of the Messiah. So essentially what happened here is that because of their rejection of Christ, he went to the cross, rose again from the grave, salvation went out to the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike, because of their rejection of Christ. And there's going to come a time when there will be a turnaround and there will be a widespread acceptance of Christ. And then there will be salvation for all, for both Jew and uh, Gentile alike. And so that's essentially where Paul is going with this. So now we get into chapter 10. So we've seen in chapter 9, God is working sovereignly. God chooses whom He wills and hardens whom He wills. And God as the potter has the freedom to do that. Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So he's resetting the context here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is still here in the context of, of salvation for Israel. And he says, look, they are zealous, but not according to knowledge. That is to say, they're fired up, man. They're excited. They just don't know for what. That's a dangerous place to be. I mean, we can be adamant. We can be confident. We can be sincere. We can be genuine. We can be excited about all the wrong things. And sometimes people think just because they have those, those um, attributes that they're right. That does not mean you're right. It's the object of your faith that determines everything, and that has to be in Christ Jesus. And that is the point Paul is making. And that was a stumbling block for the Jews because they were dead set on righteousness through the law. It had to be by works. It had to be by keeping the rules. Faith in Christ? How can that be? They stumbled over that. They rejected that. And you know, that's still happening today. And you don't have to be a Jew to, to struggle with that. That is in our nature. We can't just accept a gift from God. We have to earn that. Because that's the way that our society is set up, is it not? You have to work for it. You have to work hard. You have to earn it. But the Bible says that if you try to earn God's blessing, then you're actually going to be in debt and you're going to owe God a debt that you can't pay. And so with God, God has provided salvation to us as a gift through his son. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves in Christ and freely extended it to us if we would only believe. But the Jews couldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. They could not submit to the righteousness of God by faith. So they stumbled over it. You know, there's a, we have a responsibility, folks, and this is where the balance comes in. You have a responsibility to believe the truth. We have a responsibility to believe the gospel. Have you believed the gospel of Christ Jesus for salvation? Have you accepted God's free gift and forgiveness? Well, that leads us to verse 8. Chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, 
that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who? Whoever. Whoever. You know, I've, uh, I've shared this with you before. I've heard it explained like this. Imagine in heaven, if there, if there are gates, as you're going through the gates, that there were, there's this great glorious sign up above that you walk under. And on the front it says, whoever will may come. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And as you walk through the gate, you turn around and look on the back side of the sign. It says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. It's our responsibility to share that message. It's our responsibility to believe that message. There's salvation in no other name and no other way. Well, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy here. And so I'd like to read that to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. It says this, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. So essentially what he's saying here is that the word is not so mysterious that you can't understand it. It's not so far that you can't reach it. It's not across the ocean and you have to sail the mighty seas to get it. It's not high up on some mountain that you have to climb just to get it. It's as near as believing. The Word is as close to you as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. It is really that simple. To trust Christ. To believe that He is the Son of God that He really did come to this earth and live the life that we could not live, a life of perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And then He died the death that He didn't deserve, the death that we all deserve. Christ died, the innocent for the guilty. And there upon that cross, our sins were placed on Him, and as God's wrath was being poured out on His Son, our sins were paid for there on the cross thus washed away and forgiven. That is ours in Christ if you believe on Him. And now you stand faultless before God, guiltless. You are accepted in Him, accepted in the Beloved. You are a child of God. You are born again, born of the Spirit. And that is what it means to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth. It has to be genuine. It's not just some kind of prayer that you pray. You don't just walk an aisle, sign a card, throw some words up into the air that fall to the ground. No, you believe in your heart that this is true. You know it's true because your heart is burning and God is speaking to you and you know you've sinned. You know that you've fallen short of God's glorious standard and you know that if you stood before Him, you would be in big trouble. But God has shown you grace and mercy as He is drawing you in. And you know that this is the truth, that Jesus is the way. 
and that you need God's gift of salvation, and you cry out for mercy, God, please forgive me, help me, save me, fill me with your Holy Spirit, use me, God. I turn from the old life, I turn from my sin, I turn from my rebellion, I turn from my unbelief, and I trust you, Jesus, to be the Savior of my life, of my soul. That's what it means to surrender to the Lord, to believe on Him, to believe that He is who He says He is, that you are who He says you are, and that you need His gift. And then you receive it. You believe it. You confess it, and you surrender to the Lord. You turn from your sin. And it's as simple as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Folks, that is good news. That is good news. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel means good news. Because we know what the bad news is. It's been made clear in Romans. And the good news is the gospel of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so therein lies the balance. God chooses, but you still have to believe. You have to trust. You have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And we're told that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So not only are we responsible to believe, but we're responsible to share. Some people say, well, why even, I don't, you know, why believe? If God just chooses me, then He'll just zap me. It doesn't work that way. You have to believe in Jesus. And then people say, well, if God's going to save, then why share the gospel? That is not true. That is false. We are commissioned, we are called to go out and to be used by the Lord to spread the message, the saving news of Christ to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. So verse 14, How then shall they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. There's a lost and dying world around us, folks. We've been saved out of that. We have our ticket. But what about everybody else? How are they going to believe if they have not heard? And so Paul is stating here that you have believed, you have heard. Now we have a responsibility to go and to share that message, to get that news out. We have a responsibility and a confidence to go. Because we know God is saving people. We know God has purpose to have mercy on people. And so we have confidence with the gospel message that it's a saving message and that it is empowered by God, by His Holy Spirit, and that it will have an effect. God's Word will go forward and it will accomplish all that He purposed. We have that confidence, amen? amen. We have that responsibility and we have that confidence. So as I said chapter 10 is kind of that in-between where we find the balance, the responsibility of man. So chapter 11, God's wisdom and redemption displayed and praised. That's what we really see here. So chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars? And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? 
I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So he says, is God done with the Jews then? Is God finished? Maybe God's word hasn't failed, but is God finished? Is God done? He says, absolutely not. I myself am an Israelite, Paul proclaims. And so clearly God is not done with the Jews, for Paul had been saved. So now Paul is going to reference 1 Kings chapter 19 as an illustration. And we all know the story. Elijah, and he came against the prophets of Baal, and it was a, a victorious time uh, against the prophets. But then he, he runs away, and he hits this pit of despair, of discouragement. God seeks him out, and he says, God, I, I alone am left. I alone am the faithful Israelite. That's just pride right there. But God says, no, you're not. You're not alone. I have reserved 7,000 faithful men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God had a remnant. God had kept for Himself a remnant of people who had not turned to the false gods. And that this was according to the election of grace. God kept them. God had a plan. Again, just resetting the context here. God had a plan in the Jews all along for all of this, even their rejection. And those who would not turn away, God kept them, and He said it was according to the election of grace. So Romans 11, verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So Paul asks a rhetorical question here, have they fallen away finally? Okay, so God's not done with the people of Israel. Then he kind of asks another question that seems very similar. Have they fallen away finally? And the answer is a resounding no. God is not done. God has used their temporary rejection for the acceptance of the Gentiles. The Jews were God's chosen people. God was working in a very special and unique way with them. But when God decided to bring the Messiah, they rejected the Messiah, and then salvation was opened up for the rest of the world outside of the Jews. And that was all part of God's plan. And then he says that their temporary rejection meant salvation for the world, how much their acceptance. Verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all." So it says, concerning your sake, they are enemies of the gospel. They had rejected the gospel and they were persecutors of those who preached the gospel. But he says, concerning the fathers, they are beloved. God had a plan. God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God was going to keep that promise. That's why they were beloved, because God was going to be faithful to his promise to their fathers. And then it says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's a glorious verse, folks. I don't know how many times I have just gripped that verse for life. 
the promises, the giftings, the callings of God, they're irrevocable. You know what that means? God doesn't do take-backs. God has called you. God has given you promises. God loves you. God has a purpose and a plan in it all. And He desires to use you. And God doesn't do take-backs. God uses it all for good. And in the end, God is going to accomplish exactly what He intended to accomplish. So we're told here that God gave them over for a time for the sake of mercy for everyone. Now, this is God's amazing wisdom and salvation, all of this. It's hard to understand and it's hard to explain. I mean, it's hard to stand up here and even try to track through all of that. That's really challenging stuff. But God's wisdom and salvation, it sends Paul into this glorious praise, this glorious doxology. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Who can grasp the infinite wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the judgments of God? They're past finding out. They're unsearchable. You'll never fully reach the bottom of the ocean of God's infinite wisdom. It goes on and on. Who can match intellect with God? Who can tell God how things should be done? And now we're all guilty of that, aren't we? We've tried, and we probably continue to try, do we not? But who can do such a thing? Who can grasp the infinite wisdom of God? Who can match intellect? Who can tell God how it should be done? To whom shall the Lord ever be indebted? To whom shall the Lord ever owe anything? No one. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Folks, it's all about Jesus. It's all from Him. It's all through Him. It's all to Him. It's all for Him. It's all about God's plan. It's all about God's work and God's purpose. And we get to be a part of that. You know, oftentimes we see ourselves as the center of it all, do we not? I mean, let's just be real. That is exactly how we see it. God and His purposes and His plans revolve around us. And we read ourselves into the Bible and everything is all about what God's doing in our lives. But the reality is God is doing something so much bigger and we get to be a part of that because it's about Him. It's for Him. It's from Him. It's through Him. It's to Him. He is the center of it all. He is above it all. He is before it all, and He will be after it all. It is all about Him, and it is all to His glory and the praise of His glorious grace. Amen? Amen. And that's where Paul arrives from chapters 1 through 11. He just breaks forth in this glorious praise, realizing that every aspect of this from man's sinful condition and being raised up out of that and being justified and then being reconciled and then being sanctified and then being united with Christ and then adopted and how all of that is part of God's sovereign plan according to election. And then he says, man, how majestic. 
How transcendent. How glorious is the wisdom of God in salvation. Nobody can fully understand the mind of God. No one can match intellect with Him. No one can tell God what to do. No one will ever have God be in their debt. For Him, through Him, to Him are all things. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. And so with that, just a little bit of a conclusion here. Chapter 12. Here the book hinges, and it turns into application. How then shall we live? And folks, that's the way that it works. It starts with God. Oftentimes, we just go straight to, how shall I live? You know, but it starts with God. Who is God? What has He done? When we recognize that, it causes the way that we live to just flow freely out of that. It changes everything. It changes everything. And so, in Romans chapter 12, immediately on the back end of that glorious praise, he says, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, here is Paul's plea. He says, I urge you, I cry out, that you would give yourself to Him. Give yourself to God entirely in His service, in surrender, in worship. In light of all that God has done for you, would you please give yourself to Him? Every part of you, not just a little bit, not just maybe this here, but God, you can't have that. No, give God everything. All of your mind, all of your heart, all of your strength. Open up every part of your life to Him. Every part. Hold nothing back. Purpose in your heart that you're going to serve Him with all of your might. That you're going to follow Him. That you're going to love Him. That you're going to serve Him. You're going to seek Him. Divorce yourself from this world and the powers of its conformity. That's what the world is doing. It's seeking to conform you into its image. You have to separate yourself from that. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the word from which we get metamorphosis. And that is to be totally changed, radically changed, radically transformed. To give yourself to God and to allow Him to make you a brand new creation. It's not just a matter of reforming who you used to be and just trying to change your habits a little bit. No, it is being crucified with Christ. The old man, the old woman has been put to death and being risen again into the newness of life in union, unity with Christ, being transformed, being separated from the world that you would taste and see the perfect will of God. And that's what it's about, folks. Taste and see. Don't you want to know that? Don't you want to experience that? Don't you want to see what God has for you? It is good. It is perfect. So much better than anything that we could ever have for ourselves apart from Him. Whatever it may be. God is better. Do you know that? I know that there are a lot of people in this room who know that. Greatest decision of your life is to surrender to Him, to believe on Him, to call upon the name of the Lord, to be saved. All to the glory of God, to the praise of His glorious grace. All for your good and for the good of those around you.
And that's God's heart. God proved that. God demonstrated that by sending His Son Jesus to die for us so that we could know Him, so that we could be His. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we worship You. Thank You, God. We may not fully understand all of this and how it all works, but Lord, one thing we know, You're in control, that You are in charge and that You are absolutely good, that You are absolutely wise, absolutely right, and that You do all things well. You do all things for Your glory, for Your name's sake. Lord, You love us, and You have what is best for us in mind. And Lord, that's what we want. Lord, we want to surrender to You afresh. Perhaps there's someone in this room who does not know You. They haven't trusted You, God. I pray that You would open their heart, open their eyes. In this very moment, God, may they cry out. May they trust You for salvation, God. May they surrender their lives to You. For any in this room, Father, who have strayed, they know You, they love You, but God, they've grown cold. They've grown distant. They've grown distracted. I pray, Father, that You would give them fresh vision, that You would give them a a heart that is on fire for You, that You would give them a fresh joy and excitement in life, a fresh love and joy and excitement for You. And I pray for those, O God, who are walking the walk, Lord, and they are in lockstep with You. Father, would You just continue to to fan those flames, Lord, that they would remain on fire for You and that they would just seek to go deeper always. I just pray for this church, Lord. I pray that Your Spirit would just be poured out upon us all right now. Fill us afresh, O God. We need You. We need anything and everything that we can get from You, God. And You give it freely. So often, Lord, we're the ones that hold back. You would beckon us to to step forward and to go deeper and we hold back so god may we just give ourselves to you entirely and hold nothing back i pray oh god that you would have your way in this church in our lives in our families in this community and god may you be glorified in jesus name amen